0: Before we begin, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I'm looking forward to this. I ask you to bless and help me to be able to communicate in the time that we have. Lord, may our study of Reformation um, be encouraging to us, be educational, um, but also may we gain something spiritually from it. And thank you so much for 2,000 years of your hand on the church. And we. We expect, if you don't come, Lord, for many more uh, glorious uh, points in church history in the the days to come. We pray you'd bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this is a survey of the Reformation and um, its history and its doctrine. And we are a church that people come from a variety of um, different types of church backgrounds. We have former Pentecostals. We have former... Baptists, or we're we're sort of Baptistic. We have people that were Lutherans and Catholics converted to Christianity and a wide variety of of different cultures. And we felt that talking about the Reformation and what it means to us would really be beneficial and that a lot of you may have questions. Some of you may not have heard this material before. And so we're just going to jump in here real quick. Uh, So here's the outline and plan of attack for our class. But before we Get to that. Why study history at all? Uh, today, people don't like history, although my daughter's in a classical school, charter school, and she loves history. Um, but why study history? George Santayana, the philosopher, said, Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And in um, church history, particularly, we see the same errors popping up again and again and again. So why study the Reformation in particular? Well, American Christians seem to suffer from historical amnesia. Most of us operate like nothing existed at all before 1900, or at least before 1776. Uh, So it's important for us to study this. Another reason would be that remembering church history will safeguard us from error now, and I talked a little bit about that, um, but we have examples as Jehovah's Witnesses, Um, They teach basically what Arian believed in the 300s in the Council of Nicaea condemned. Uh, And then evangelicals and Catholics together, if we forget the Reformation, we forget why that's important. That's a very big movement today in the church to blur all distinctions between Catholics and Christians because we're fighting the same pro-life cause, right? Um, Another reason, and this may be the most important reason to study the Reformation, is that the Reformation was the virtual recovery of evangelical doctrine, and often we are still being blessed because of what the Reformation did. Um, please, if, if anyone can help grab chairs for people that come in late, that'd be awesome. Um, studying the doctrine of Reformation may help us reform the church today and recover the passion that God, uh, for God that characterized that era. And here's kind of a plan of attack. We have 10 lessons. Um, I'm going to be out deer hunting with Craig Anderson on opening weekend for the first time in years. So someone else is going to substitute for the class. I'm not sure who that will be yet. So besides that, we have 10 classes and we end December 16th. So we have 10 sessions. Today we're going to do an intro, an overview of church history Um, really fast. And then we're going to do the forerunners of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, Puritanism, and the legacy of the Reformation. So we'll do a big chunk on history, but we'll try to intersperse doctrine and scripture verses and hymns. We sang a hymn from Ambrose, Savior of the Nations Come. It's sort of a Christmas song, but not really. There's a lot of other things. You missed it if you came late. Uh, That was written in the 300s, and we're still singing it today. Um, the doctrine, uh, Reformation doctrine, the big picture, total depravity and irresistible grace. What is that? Unconditional election, particular redemption. Uh, we'll just go through that. And then the other points of Calvinism, um, and then why the Reformation matters today. So. We're going to try to have lots of time for questions and answers. Today, it's mainly history, so I'm not expecting a lot of questions, and I'm trying to cover 1,000 years in 60 minutes. So I don't know if I'll quite make that, but let's dig in here. So an overview of church history. For church history today, we're going to be looking at approaches to studying history, persecutions in the spread of the church, church fathers encouraging, defending, and protecting the church, the progressive development of doctrine and some controversies and heresies. So um, if I were to ask you what do you remember from church history class, um, many of you probably never had one. Um, so any names come to mind with church history? Any Luther. Luther. And a lot of that's one of our things is that most people's church history starts with 1517 and Martin Luther. But what about before him? Any, any names or figures? come to mind. Erasmus was contemporary with Luther but it has a nice old sounding name. Augustine Constantinople the city so we're going we're gonna to have fun so buckle your seatbelt here um, first of all uh, an attempt at humor um, so you see the guy here with his chart uh, churches and Christian movements throughout history and he goes so here is where our movement came in and got everything right And then the skeptic guy goes, Jesus is so lucky to have us, it's the monkey on his back. So there's some truth to this, and a lot of times this is how we operate, that we basically say, here, this is all that matters, we're right, everyone else, we'll just throw them away, they don't mean anything. Well, we actually owe a lot to our forebears, and we'll try to show that here. And I call this a not-so-humble approach to history. So here's some other bad approaches to studying church history. One of them is, what's church history? We don't need that. We need new innovations and adaptations, and we're just going to do church however we want. Who cares about church history? Um, Restorationism is the idea that the church totally corrupted, and so we, our particular group, group or movement, have recovered the true faith. Think of the church of The Latter-day Saints, so the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, the Church of Christ, Apostolics, Pentecostals, um, various different movements, and even some, what we would consider good groups, they basically operate that way, that everyone else was totally wrong, and then the Reformation came, or, or our group came, our guy figured it out. A negative view views the early and medieval church with just suspicion, heavy suspicion. And, you know, you say, well, Augustine, oh, he probably had a bunch of bad things. Well, he did have some things that weren't quite so right. And they find mud for every single person's face in all of church history, and that's all they're looking for. And so church is just bad. And basically for them, their view of history basically starts with the Reformation. And then the positive view, an overly positive view, says, oh, well, we're too modern today. Our church confessions and things, they're too late. Let's go back to the real church. And they were more wide open, and, and they, they allowed lots of doctrinal differences, and you know, pretty much whatever you want to do, they did in the early church, so let's do that. But I want to teach a biblical, balanced approach. Of course, my approach is biblical and balanced. Um so Christ has not forsaken his church. So this strikes at the heart of restorationism, and we won't, well, let's read there because we don't have a lot of other scripture verses to read. I have it here. Matthew sixteen eighteen. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. So it's Christ's church. He's going to build it. And he said that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So that's what Jesus said, I believe that. I don't believe that even when it looks like there's nothing there, there has to be something there because Christ promised. And Matthew 28 says um, that I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So Christ promises to be with his church. If there's no church, who's he with? So that's a promise that the church will endure. And then progressive development of doctrine, we are learning this a little bit in the systematic class, but progressive revelation, if you see scripture, it doesn't start out with Genesis one one. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, and he came into this world. It starts with, there's going to be the seed of, you know, at, uh, Eve's seed, the seed of the woman. Oh, and then it's going to be, you know, of the of Abraham. Then it's going to be of Judah. Then it's going to be of David. There's this progressive development of, of revelation, and I believe that that meshes well with an idea of a progressive understanding that the church had of doctrines, and we'll see that more later. But in John 14, 26, it says... Um, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then in John 16 it says, he will guide you into all truth. So that is something that was going to happen after Christ went away, and that has been happening and continues to happen. God teaches us and and has been shaping and molding his church. So God's not on the sideline through history just watching it happen. Oh, wow. Wow. Boy, that Reformation, I don't know about that. I mean, he was orchestrating that, moving in that, and recovering church doctrine through, through that. Um, our approach avoids snobbery, um, historical snobbery that, well, we know better than them. They're totally wrong. Well, yes, but maybe we don't quite understand the language they're using, the culture they're talking in, and their particular problems that they had. Um, And there's things that we can learn from them. For instance, they really cared for the poor a lot more than American churches seem to do. Um, They also had a desire for the spiritual life. You can say what you want about the monks, but how many people do you know of have decided to abandon all their property and go move somewhere and pray and read the Bible every day? That's not really a very common thing these days. So yes, there were abuses, but there's some things that we can learn about that. Um, shunning of worldly goods, high view of sin and doctrine. This was an interesting thing. We won't get into it, but baptismal regeneration is an idea that baptism was kind of the way that made you saved. Part of that came from they believed that once you got baptized, you were so committed to Christ that if you sinned, you had like one chance. If you did some kind of big sin after you got saved, after that one chance and you repented one time, then that was it. If you did another big sin, sorry, bub, we don't have any faith that you're a Christian. So that developed into, let's delay baptism as long as we can. Um, for a while, that was one of the ways that, that they were doing it. On their deathbed, they get baptized, and that sort of became the, the last rites of the Catholic Church. So there's error there, but there's also a high view of sin. Uh, and that just really struck me this week, and I, I wish it would have struck me more, and, and hopefully it will. But only one big sin. You know, we take sin for granted. Oh, I can sin whatever I want because I am completely saved, justified by faith. Um, another one is a high view of the church. It became too high view, but today people are church optional and they're church shoppers and it doesn't really matter to them to have any kind of church group. Them, if you weren't part of the church, sorry, you probably not even saved. And that was a different view back then. Our view also recognizes the importance of historic orthodoxy. Scripture is seen not just um, everyone can go with their Bible and become whatever they want to be, just they, they can learn it all themselves. There's truth to that, but the Reformers didn't teach that either. It's that the faith has always had certain key orthodox teaching. And so through the lens of the church fathers and the ecumenical creeds, we can see really how to interpret Scripture by learning from the, the history. And then basically we want to have a humble approach. We want to be able to listen to the early church and see if there's things that we can learn and from it. So then the persecutions and spread of the church, early church history from A.D. 100 to A.D. 313. And just here's some really quick persecutions. Probably a name that people would have remembered is Nero. He's very famous as a persecutor of the church. And Nero would have Christians dipped in tar and lit on fire at night to make the roads of Rome uh, bright and like night lights. Um, just sick man, demented in many other things besides just persecuting Christians. But um, actually, although there are numerous different um, persecutions here during, all those are different Roman emperors. It really wasn't a systematic, let's go take every Bible and burn it, and let's kill every single Christian type approach. In Rome during Nero, there was a little bit of that. But even then, it wasn't systematic empire-wide, not until Diocletian. In Diocletian, he upped the ante, and that's where we did. We lost lots of copies of Scripture, were burned. And um, What's interesting, too, is as we study the church fathers, almost every one of them was martyred. Um, if, you were, if you were worth anything, you were martyred eventually. So um, the period of church history, they were hounded. There wasn't, you know, we fault them. They they were, they were so off on their doctrine. Well, they didn't have, you know, communication methods very easy, for one. For two, they didn't even have entire copies of the New Testament yet. And then for three, every time they turned around, a Roman soldier was there trying to kill them. So you got to give them a little bit of a break. And even though there was persecution, this the church grew rapidly. Missionaries, Um, such as um, a different guy named Augustine went to Britain, and others went everywhere, and there was rapid church growth. In the time of the apostles, it says that Mark went to North Africa, Thomas went to India, that's what church tradition teaches, and then uh, Paul did reach Spain according to church tradition, so that's pretty much the corners of the world there, and um, that all happened before AD 100. Persecution accelerated the spread. Tertullian, a man we'll study in a bit, Said the blood of the Christian martyrs is the seed of the church. Um, So, and it was true that many of the church fathers, many of the key figures, they were in fact Tertullian himself. They they saw people persevere in faith in the arena, and there's something different about how they died, and that's how that person came to Christ. Numerous testimonies in the church. By the early 300s, it was a slow, gradual growth. There was already about 10% of the population of the Roman Empire were Christian. Uh, Still not massive, but that's that's a lot from a little, you know, 1,220 guys in the room there in Acts chapter 1. But there wasn't much time to develop traditions and doctrine as carefully as they could have amidst all that persecution. Then Constantine... Constantine, of whom uh, Constantinople was his crowning achievement, he built that city. But he was an emperor, and he was fighting, and there was the battle of the Milvian Bridge. Now take it for what it's worth. I don't know if it really happened or not, but this is what he said happened, and this is what church history remembers. He's getting ready to um, fight this battle, and all of a sudden in the sky there's a big cross, and there's a voice that says, In this sign, conquer. Conquer. He won the battle, and then he actually had the first decree of religious freedom when it comes to Christianity. And I was struck by how much religious freedom he gave in this here. The Edict of Milan, we have determined with sound and upright purpose that no one at all should be denied the liberty to choose and follow the religious observances of the Christians. Each person shall be given the freedom to devote his mind to whatever religion he thinks best for himself, so that in everything God, whom we worship freely from our hearts, may show us his usual care and favor. That's Constantine in A.D. 313. And there's a few you know, later emperors who tried to go back to the old ways, And um, but basically after 313, we were pretty much home free as far as persecution goes. Of course, people are still dying for the faith today. There's multiple different types of persecution, but in that day and age, the, the state empire stopped major persecution of the church in AD 313. So then that leads to, um, more time for the church fathers and for Christianity to have creeds and confessions and and to start trying to nail down things as, as, as problems arise. So here's the church fathers and, um, I'm going to get into this later, but one of the ways that things developed as far as doctrine was: there would be an error, and a bunch of people would start promoting this error, and then a bunch of other people would go, "Let's. This doesn't sound right," and there'd be more study of Scripture, more study and thought together. They'd come together in a council, and then they would make a statement rejecting the error, and that was. Kind of you had to wait for some of the errors to come before you really understood the more finer points of doctrine, and that we even see that in Acts chapter fifteen there was an error, there was a church council, and then they made a decision, and after that that error was silenced so it was it is a biblical pattern, so the church fathers um, when we 're talking about the fathers before I get into this. We're not bowing down and worshiping them, although some people do pray to some of these guys, and that's not good. But that doesn't mean that they didn't live lives to the best of their ability following Jesus and that many of them were truly born-again people loving the Lord and and doing what they could in their particular era. So there is a lot that we can learn about them. Um, So first of all, there's the apostolic fathers, and um, their purpose was to exhort and edify the church. So these guys wrote during the times of periodic persecutions, and most of them were martyred. Um, I know Ignatius and Polycarp and Papias were martyred. And so these men had a desire to encourage and edify and strengthen this new movement of Christianity. Clement is interesting because some of his writings are contemporary with John's writings they were in the his first letter of Clement to the Corinthians was written in AD 95 or 96 and already in that letter as well as in the second letter they're calling or in in the first letter um, he says that Paul's letters are scripture already in AD 95 and then in the second letter of Clement we're not sure if it's Clement's letter or not it's really the first sermon we have that other than Hebrews is a sermon, but 2nd Clement is a sermon as well. And in there it talks about the Gospels as Scripture, too. So already we see a really high view of Scripture with Clement writing to the same church at Corinth. He says, now pick up those letters that Paul sent you. And remember when he wrote them, you had these Divisions, and you were following Paul and Apollos. Very interesting. It's fascinating. And and he said, there's scripture. Pick them up. Read them. And and now you're having this other problem again. So the Corinth needed another letter from another man of God. Uh, Of course, not an inspired writing, but very fascinating to read. Ignatius um, was a bishop of Antioch. And I say bishop um, in the King James. You'll find the word bishop in the Bible. It's the word for overseer. Um, so if you see overseer in the modern translations, that's what bishop means. And when I say bishop, these guys weren't necessarily operating like a Roman bishop with a big cone hat, you know, not quite yet. They were basically, you could think of them as pastors, but they were like a senior pastor, a respected pastor of the whole town. And there was, wasn't was very many churches necessarily back then. So Ignatius, he um, was captured in about A.D. 110, 111, and they were taking him to be executed. And along the way, he writes seven letters to different churches. Well, six to churches and one to Polycarp, exhorting them to be encouraged and to defend the faith and to not give up. And it's very moving letters. And it's interesting, some of the cities he wrote to, Ephesus, Rome, Philadelphia, Smyrna, uh, some of the cities you'll recognize from our studies in Revelation here pretty soon. Um, And then Polycarp was a, the bishop of Smyrna, so the church of Smyrna, I mean, that letter that, that was given to them from John, they probably had a copy of it on, in his possession. Um, and he was a disciple of John the Beloved. So John, who wrote Revelation, uh, Polycarp was his disciple. He wrote a letter to the Philippians, which we still have. And then there's a famous story of his martyrdom, and we'll, we'll actually quote it in the next uh, slide. Papias was also a disciple of John. He was a bishop of Herapolis, and he was one of the fathers. And then there were other influential books widely read at this time, The Shepherd of Hermas or The Pastor of Hermas, an allegorical kind of like a Pilgrim's Progress type thing. Um, it's pretty interesting. And then there's the Didache, The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. Now, um, the Apostolic Fathers, um, just a little plug, uh, you can get them pretty much anywhere. And they were, the back copy of this book from Moody says, what you have in your hand is a modern translation of early Christian bestsellers. And they were. Besides scripture, they were the the most widely read books that Christians read. And have you read them? If you haven't, you should. Uh, It's a little bit different, but there's a lot that's in there that's beneficial And uh, it's it's worth taking some time to read the Apostolic Fathers. So here's a couple uh, excerpts from the Apostolic Fathers. From the martyrdom of Polycarp, this is his famous statement. Eighty-six years I have served him, speaking of Jesus, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And that was as they're trying to get him to recant. His faith, so he, so he's, you know, he's an old man. He doesn't need to be burned at the stake. You know, you should just, you know, recant and just don't worry about it. He was burned at the stake instead, faithful to his Lord. Polycarp's letter to the Philippians: Paul, who wrote you letters, that will enable you, if you study them carefully, to grow in the faith delivered to you. So already a high view of Scripture, and then First Clement. I really like this one um, because even today, a lot of people give you a hard time for believing in. The Rahab's scarlet thread having typological significance, meaning that it's pointing to the blood of Christ. Well, no one told Clement that it wasn't that way. And he said, by this Rahab's scarlet thread, they made it clear that it was by the blood of the Lord that redemption was going to come to all who believe in God and hope on him. So that's from First Clement. So that's the um, Apostolic Fathers, now uh, a group that's called the Apologists. They were writing a little bit later in the 100s, and Justin Martyr is a famous name. Uh, He was a Christian philosopher, but he didn't have a problem with setting aside philosophy and just going with the Bible. Uh, But he was able to interact with the philosophers and defend the faith. And he wrote special apologies, uh, special book-length letters to a couple of the emperors, Antonius and Marcus Aurelius. And then he wrote a dialogue with Trifo, the Jew, which is very fascinating to see back in the 150s how the Jews were um, arguing against Christianity and how Christianity had responses to their arguments. And you can read it in Justin Martyr's writings. He was martyred, obviously his last name comes from being remembered as a martyr. Was a convert of Justin, and he's most famous for the Diatessaron, which in some parts of the church was more popular than the four Gospels, and it really was the four Gospels in running form. It was like a harmony, just all in one story. So instead of four side by side, he just basically made one version. Uh, so it wasn't. It was decided that it was not scripture, but it was a very popular uh, book, and it was the life of Christ and very well known in parts of the church for years. He also wrote against paganism. And then Tertullian is known as the father of the Western theology. He was the first person to use the term Trinity and, that we know of. And he wrote against the Gnostic heresy and was also the teacher of Cyprian, another of the church fathers. The polemicists, their purpose was to attack error. So very similar to defending the faith, and there is some some overlap between them. But Irenaeus, um, in AD 185, wrote Against Heresies, and it was six books long, and it was just a systematic rebuttal of Gnosticism. And most of what we know of Gnosticism comes from reading Ire- Irenaeus and his viewpoint of Gnosticism. And I do apologize. I'm going to probably mispronounce some of these guys' names. So... Um, He's also known for his proof of the apostolic preaching. I wish I had more pictures and stuff here to make it more interesting, but I ran out of time. So, Hippolytus was a disciple of Irenaeus. He wrote. Uh, he had to one-up his teacher, so he wrote Refutation of All Heresies. So when he finished the book, that was it. Everything was answered. Um, and it was basically a, another f- attack on Gnosticism. But he was also known for standing up to several of the bishops of Rome over some issues of morality that he didn't feel were being handled correctly. So even way back in the 200s, there was people that weren't afraid to um, stand up against that bishop of Rome who became what we call the Pope. And then um, the Cyprian uh, was a bishop of Carthage. He wrote against Novatianism, a splinter group, that um, refused to admit those who had recanted under persecution. And, and you can imagine this was a big deal. So the, the guys come and they say, you know, do you believe in Jesus? And you go, um, you know, no, right now I don't. And you you live, and then later, you're like, well, I really do believe in Jesus. I just, you know, I, I was under duress. Um, and I'm really sorry. I'm very sorry. Some people that I liked, they were my friends, and now they're They're dead. But I, I repented, can you let me back in the church? Novatius would say, no, you can't. You, 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 rec- you recanted, you're done. Well, the, the bishop of Rome said, well, yes, you can. We'll, we'll give you forgiveness of that. And so, um, so Cyprian was, that Novation guy was the one who was saying, no, you can't. And he basically became his own. He called himself the Bishop of Rome, got his own people to elect him, and then there was a, a rival group for about three or 400 years claiming that they were the right guys and everyone else was wrong. We don't have those groups anymore. Um, but So Cyprian, was he was arguing that you can't just reject the church like that and do your own thing, and so he was writing against him. He also wrote against paganism, but th- we'll see another group very similar to that called the Donatists and what they believed um it's a very i mean it's a very it's an ethical quandary. What do you do with something like that? yeah, and his 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 book of martyrs um, may focus more on England um in the 1500s, but um yeah, you're right that it may, for some people though, they did survive by recanting. And some people were criticized, like I think even Cyprian was criticized, because when they came to Carthage to hunt for the Christians, he snuck out the back door. And they're like, well, what are you doing? You're supposed to be a martyr. And, you know, so there is a lot of um, interesting scenarios, which they still have in China today and other places like that. Um, But in our neck of the woods, we don't really even think about that anymore. So that was the polemicists. And then the early theologians these guys, their purpose, and most of them wrote after that Edict of Milan, although some of them were already starting this before then, and they were trying to develop a systematic method of Bible interpretation, and we disagree with some of the things that they said, but they were trying to um, come to truth, and a lot of them we still hold up today as some of the greatest names of the church. Clement of Alexandria um, was known for the Alexandrian school, and Although we don't like his allegorical interpretation method, which his school developed, he was of the opinion that if you were going to be a member of a church, you had to go through at least three years, probably five to six years of intense study in a school. And he taught the school. And that kind of emphasis on doctrine and teaching and mentoring, we don't really see that as much today. But their school was known for that. Alexandria was a center of learning and they had a a humongous library um, that unfortunately was destroyed but had just one of the largest libraries in the world. He did begin to mix Greek thought with Christianity, trying to contemporize things or, um, you know, Plato had such a big effect, um, philosophy and trying to um, sort of be able to speak to his culture, he did that and um, unfortunately, that did dilute some of the truth. And he was one of the inventors of purgatory. So not necessarily one of our heroes, but he was an influential person. And then Origen of Alexandria, he was probably one of the greatest minds in the world at his time. And there were pagan scholars who were lamenting the fact that he was a Christian because he was just such a brilliant man. They said he wrote something like 6,000 books. Or just is just unbelievable. And um, if you count articles and, and essays and things, too. Um, but he had compiled the Hexapola, which we only have portions of. But the Hexapola is a six-parallel um, Bible of the Hebrew Bible. So you had, you had the Hebrew, you had a Latin translation of the Hebrew, then you had four different Greek translations of the Hebrew, and much of what we know about the Greek Old Testament uh, comes from the study of, of Origin. It was a, just an amazing study. Um, but he also wrote the first systematic theology that we know of, um, but he was also known for some quite fanciful interpretations. I, won't, I don't have any on the tip of my tongue right now, but some really far-out big zingers, um, pretty amazing. Uh, partly from his allegoricalism. But then um, another guy in Alexandria, about 100 years later, this guy uh, is one of the heroes of the church, Athanasius. And he was known as Athanasius mundum, which is Athanasius against the world. So we'll see this in the council a little bit later, but when they were defending the Trinity, at one point it got to the point where pretty much everybody was anti-trinitarian and arian they were all you, you know denying the deity of christ except for athanasius and he was fierce debater and he would not let up and so at one time they said this is this is athanasius against the world but he kept persevering and eventually the church came to a trinitarian position largely because of that one man and he had a hard time too cuz he had people that were different emperors were fighting over him, and he was exiled and kicked out, and he was tricked and captured, and all different sorts of struggles he went through in his life, and he could have could have just given up that whole fight, but thankfully he didn't. Uh, then Jerome was a theologian and writer of Rome, Bethlehem, and all over everywhere else, too. He traveled all over the world, but he is best known for writing the Latin Vulgate. That was his translation. He saw the Old Latin Bibles of his day were based on the Greek Septuagint, and he felt that we should go back to the Hebrew. And at the time, even Augustine of Hippo, um, the great Augustine, even he was up in arms uh, against um, the new translation because, you know, you're. you're You're getting rid of the the Bible, very much like the King James-only movement. There was the Septuagint-only movement, the Greek Bible-only, and there were actually um, riots, kind of like what they have in Islam today in the East, riots over, I can't believe that Jerome translated from the Hebrew, and part of that was the anti-Semitism and anti-Jewish flavor of much of the early church. But Jerome did that, and today, of course, we, we, we... you know, following Jerome's footsteps in prioritizing the Hebrew over the Greek because it is closer to the original. Um, then, moving on, I did get one picture for you. I just love this picture. This is Augustine of Hippo, and I'll take time, I think I have time to tell a little tale about his conversion. Um, Augustine, you can read his writings as well. So another plug is if you want a fascinating reading, um, it, I did it on audio, but his his book, The Confessions, which is an autobiographical narrative of his time before Christ and his conversion and his time after Christ. And um, he's very candid about some of the sins that he dealt with and a very, very interesting way of writing. And he constantly is praying to God for his favor and grace and just a very interesting book that stood the test of time. He's also known for the city of God and his... um, doctrinal um, jewel called On the Trinity. Um, But this is a picture of him reading, and I'm not sure if it's of his conversion, but his conversion experience is very interesting. He'd been struggling with sin, and basically he would notice that the, um, the celibacy of the priests. He had a mistress for years, and he knew, he somehow knew that if he was going to become a Christian, he had to give that up. And that was hard for him. And he was battling with other things as well. And he had been coming progressively to an understanding of Christianity and the truth, but was just, you know, not really converted yet. And um, so he was discussing something with some friends, and he was sitting on a bench just, and he happened to have the Book of Romans next to him, of all things. Um, but he, he had that, and he was sitting there on this bench in the park, and he heard some kids playing. And the kids' voices in kind of a sing-song voices, they were saying something like, Tola lege, Tola lege. Almost like a little song. And Tola lege, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, says, "Take up and read, take up and read." And he said later that he he never remembered any kids song, "Take up and read." But it was he took it as a divine message. And so he took up the Bible and read. And what he did is he did what you're not supposed to do. He took the Bible, he just randomly opened up and pointed a finger at at a page. So he took up, he read, and it was Romans 13. Another verse we can look to. Romans chapter 13. Romans 13 and verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And that converted him. He said he, his whole heart filled with joy and belief in, in the Lord that he wanted to repent of his sin. And that was where he points as the, the moment of his conversion. Uh, Tola Lege, take up and read so um, before augustine we 'll talk about Ambrose, who was actually augustine 's first pastor um, and who was a very well uh, respected preacher and he was the Bishop of Milan and very interestingly, he basically wrote so much stuff and he wrote about all the controversies and wrote about what everyone else had said before him that pretty much everyone in the church, years down the road, all the way to the Reformers, everyone goes to Ambrose to find out what was happening. So he's one of the most well-read church fathers today, very influential. And we, if you didn't come early, you missed, we sang a song written by Ambrose. So there he is, 385, you know, right around that time frame. We still sing a song written by Ambrose, Savior of the Nations Come. He wrote many other songs. He championed congregational singing in a day when chants and choirs were starting to take over and liturgy and all this stuff. And he's like, wait a second, the congregation needs to sing too. And he didn't just say that, he also wrote numerous hymns. And if you go to cyberhymnal.org, you can look him up and there's like a list of like 25 of them or something that we still remember. And so he was known for his hymns. And then Augustine, um, he was the most widely read church father. He is the father of the Roman Catholic Church, but he's also the father of the Protestant Reformation. It's pretty interesting, but his views of salvation and justification and election are exactly what Martin Luther and and John Calvin and all the reformers uh, went with. But his views on the church developed into the church being so important that you have Roman Catholics. Catholic doctrine, but he was just a brilliant mind. Um, but he was a very zealous Christian and uh, just a man of God. He did not want to become a public figure. He would rather just go somewhere and read. But he got to Hippo, and they said, "No, no, no, you can't be a monk. We need you to be the the pastor. We need you. There's controversy. We need you." And so he was thrust unwillingly into church leadership. Uh, And he wrote things that put his neck out on the line, but he did because he had to counteract error. And he's best known for those books that I talked about already. And then John Chrysostom of Antioch and also Constantinople for a time. He was well known for his preaching and he was the father of grammatical historical interpretation. So as opposed to Alexandria, the Antioch school, the Antiochene method of interpretation was more literal, emphasizing the literal sense versus the fanciful allegorical sense. So enough about the fathers. Now we'll talk about the progressive development of doctrine real quick. So a little bit about progressive development. Scripture is what it is. And doctrine is what it is. It's us who have to develop to figure out what the doctrine is. It's not that we're changing scripture. Um, doctrine is teaching. So the teaching of the apostles in the scripture is the doctrine that the church should, should believe. But the early church grew in their understanding of church Uh, teaching of of the doctrine of scripture and it grew over time just as God progressively revealed more and more truth in scripture so the church progressively grew and grew and grew in their understanding of what the doctrine of scripture really was and again we talked about this already heresy would challenge the status quo the church would collaborate and get together and then condemn this heresy and the result was a, a new creed or a new confession or a new statement that clarified the truth and um, expelled the error. Examples of how doctrine has developed over time is uh, theology and Christology. We'll talk about that more next, but the church councils and creeds. Then soteriology would be the Reformed confessions and and, um, catechisms. They really we really developed our understanding of salvation much more scripturally um, in the Reformation. Ecclesiology, after the Reformation, we dealt with church and state issues, and so denominations came out, and uh, there was a more understanding of of ecclesiology, not necessarily that the whole church agrees on it, but a, a greater understanding of the importance of that. And then eschatology, again, the whole church doesn't agree on eschatology, but with the Niagara Bible Conference and the fundamentals of the faith um, in the early 1900s, they solidified some of the main key points of orthodox doctrine on eschatology, that there is a literal second coming and the, um, things like that. There's a judgment of, of the wicked and eternal bliss for for the redeemed. Uh, so there's still, you know, development happening and, and talk through different church groups in eschatology today. Bibliology is the same way. We didn't really, it was just assumed for so long. And then error came and the high high criticism and and denials of inerrancy. And so then with that, there's, there was various different statements. But in 1980 or 79, I can't remember, there was a statement called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which today is still one of the latest examples of a church council, if you will. It was an evangelical gathering and a statement. I could have put on there the Council of Biblical and Manhood and Womanhood is another issue that is not as widely accepted as the Chicago Statement, but that is basically defining inerrancy in the presence of error. We didn't really have these errors before, so we have to deal with it today. So this is just a real quick slide. I won't spend a lot of time on this. This is the development of acceptance of scripture. And we talked about it in the systematic classes, but it was over time. So in 100, we had all the collections of Paul's letters were already around. Collections of the four gospels were around by 150. In 200, there was um, a canon from the Church of Rome that included most of the New Testament, but it included a couple letters that were not what we consider the New Testament. And then by 250, no one was accepting as the, as the New Testament any letters that were not New Testament letters. But there were still some that were disputed. So disputed, and then at this time there was still these other letters that were being disputed. But then in 300, pretty much no one's talking about those other letters anymore. And they're just talking about the New Testament letters and trying to figure out which ones. And they're well known, but they're still disputed. And then by Athanasius' time, uh, he was the one who wrote the first list of the 27 books of the New Testament that he used and accepted as canonical was from a letter of his in A.D. 367. And that's the entire New Testament. And then it clearly to excluded all these other letters. And... In 397, the Council of Carthage ratified that, and the churches together agreed. And it's basically east and west and north and south and all these distances and all of that and the persecution. So it's not that 397 comes along, you must use this as scripture, here you go. And it's church made. It's that over time, it became very apparent and everyone agreed that the the New Testament is what it is. Then major church councils, Um, this is very interesting so these are the ecumenical councils which means east and west and just a widely attested lots of people came there rather than like a little council just in one area and so first of all you have Christ is fully divine against Arianism council of Nicaea then he's fully human so there was kind of the error swung well maybe he's not really human then Uh, council of Constantinople and then Christ is a unified person 100% man, 100% God in the same person, the hypostatic union. That's the Council of Ephesus. And then Christ is human and divided in in one person. So unified, and now he's human and divine completely in the Council of Chalcedon. So just, you can tell there's this kind of struggles. Well, if that's this, then this. And so it took a while for them to get clear on the teaching. And so here's some of the creeds, and this, this will be an example. So the Apostles' Creed around A.D. 300 doesn't really hone in on Trinitarianism very much. It just says, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and buried. And then on the third day he rose, he ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God, And he will judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, that just the word Catholic means universal or wide, doesn't mean Catholic doctrine. And then the communion of saints, um, the forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. And today, pretty much everyone who claims to be Christian will accept this creed, the Apostles' Creed. But as we come to Chalcedon on the other end of that series of councils, now we have a much more... Uh, precise definition. So, um, I'm not going to read the whole thing here, but he's, um, the same perfect in Godhead, also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead, consubstantial with us according to the manhood, and all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages, uh, and he was born of the Virgin Mary. He's, uh, Christ's Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of natures but doesn't take away the union, but rather each nature is preserved. You can tell this is very precise. And that's, we we believe the Chalcedonian version of Christianity, of Trinitarianism. And there are some churches today, Oneness Pentecostal, apostolic churches. Uh, some of my, I like Phillips, Craig, and Dean, but they're... they're uh, Oneness uh, Pentecostals, and they don't believe in the Trinity. They believe in modalism, and we'll talk about that. So, real quick, buzz through on the controversies and the heresies—everything um, you don't want to know, but I'm going to tell you. So, Gnostics—special hidden wisdom—you got to get this special stuff from us, and they had these little secret rites and rituals. Very popular, and of course, that's the. Gospel of Mary Magdalene and the Gospel of Thomas and all these things that were um, they were they were minor books and all of them were written and we know that they were written in three or four hundred AD so there's no chance that they could be legitimate because they're written so late. Um, Then the Montanists uh, basically a charismatic leader who said follow me you need to have asceticism and legalism and And I had special charismatic powers and there was like different sorts of tongue speaking and stuff like that that was associated with these people and they became kind of their own separate group. And then the Monarchians, this was part of what those creeds dealt with, the idea that the only true personality in the Trinity is God. And this developed into modalism. This is where uh, what the Oneness Pentecostals believe that God is Jesus, is the Holy Spirit, but not all one. In other words, God the Father, when he was on earth, was acting like Jesus Christ. And when he is in your heart, he's acting like the Holy Spirit. Different modes of his existence, not concurrent at the same time. So it's, it's close, but not, not Trinitarian theology. Then the Manichaeists, followers of Mani. I uh, love that name, Mani. Um, Gnostic like, dualistic, uh, mystical form of Christianity. Um, strong division between clergy and laity, the role of priests as intermediaries, and asceticism. A lot of that influenced the church. It was very popular for a time, then it fizzled out, but the leftovers was this high view of priests and this special sacerdotalism uh, and the liturgy comes from them. Dantinists, like those novations. what do you do with those who recanted? If they recanted, then their baptism doesn't even count now and their ordination doesn't count. So this gets into very much like the Baptist bride movement today, that, well, you were baptized by him, and he recanted, so therefore I can't accept your baptism. You have to come get over into our church. And um, Augustine wrote against them. Arians, this is what Nicaea dealt with. Arius denied Jesus' full deity. Nestorians said that, Jesus didn't have two equal natures, and then there was another group similar to that. Macedonians rejected the full deity of the Holy Spirit. All of this the councils figured out. We'll talk more about this later but uh, next time, but Pelagius, um, Pelagians followed him. He taught that man had such free will that uh, he wasn't affected by original sin, and if he chose to, he could be holy, and that there were holy people who weren't Christians that just had never sinned and that they would be in heaven, too. And uh, man just needs some education and some help. And he was reacting against some problems in his day, but uh, the church condemned that view of siding with Augustine. But then they sort of went halfway towards that as the medieval theology developed. They took a moderate Pelagian view called semi-Pelagianism, and we'll talk about that next time. Then, real quick, the rise of the Roman church, uh, the the bishop of Rome at first there was Rome, Alexandria, Antioch and then later Constantinople the new Rome. These were like the prominent big big guys and then eventually it became Rome and Constantinople are the two big guys and then it became we don't agree with you and you don't agree with us and so there was the split, East Church and West Church. And so gradually the pope came and so depending on who you read, they'll say people in the 200s were the Pope. Well, they weren't called the Pope then. They were just the Bishop of Rome. It wasn't until around the 400s that the Pope, as we know it, came about. But interestingly enough, Gregory the Great was a Pope that even Protestants uh, respect. He was an amazing man um, who did a lot of great things for the church. And although he also solidified the papacy. But he didn't want it at all, but they made him do it. And he uh, worked to reform the church, worked to help the poor, worked to send missionaries everywhere. So he really was a great man of God, but he also, on the other end of that, when he gave the keys to the next guy, you know, it started going downhill from there. It's like one of those things that if you have the right person in the right place, he can do great stuff, but it doesn't always work with other people. Um, And then more spreading. Even as Islam started encroaching, Christianity was spreading all over Europe. Russia, Hungary, um, Britain, France, all these pagan tribes are being converted to Christianity through missions. And it's just an amazing story. Um, And then we'll talk more about this later um, when we get into the forerunners of the Reformation. But there was splits and schisms and... We've talked a little bit about that, but we'll skip that and just go into the forerunners of the Reformation, the, the decline of the church, and then the different bright lights during it that get us ready to talk about the Reformation. So thanks for coming. Any quick questions um, or any comments before we close? Yes, Mary. Hi. I just have a question. Is any of this going to be available on your yes. The church website. I'm going to have it available on PowerPoint and um, the MP3, hopefully. I'm not sure how the recording will turn out, but we'll have it on there. All right, so let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the benefit of history that we can see so much clearer now, uh, having seen all the error and things that went before us. And Lord, help us never to be so puffed up of our own uh, pride, Lord, that we don't uh, share that commonality and and joy as we hear about the conversion of Augustine. And even though some of his teachings may not have been everything that they should have been, we just thank you for your work of grace in his life. And we know that you're working in our lives. We ask you, please help us as we grow and help us as we study this uh, lesson. Um, I just pray you'll bless In Jesus' name, give us a good time in the service, worshiping, and bless the sermon. In Jesus' name, amen.